HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty, and the jazz is musicians. It's like, it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacking Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On this week's episode... Darren heads down to San Juan, Puerto Rico to connect with Paulina Escanes, the chef owner of the critically acclaimed restaurant Paulina Escanes Gourmandise. Paulina hails from Guadalajara, Mexico, where she was instilled with an early love of good eating, having been raised in a family of gourmands. A longtime resident of Puerto Rico, she stepped into the restaurant business first as a baker before eventually opening her eponymous restaurant in 2018. Later on in the episode, we are joined by our studio engineer, Jeet, as we both interview Sarah Jaffe, who joins us live for performance of songs from her Smut EP, and discusses the hospitality of Texas musicians and army crawling your way through the tough parts of life. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. You don't shock me. But you surprised me Reality TV Is not much going on Same words, same song Just like everyone else But it feels important to see
sleep. You got me surrounded. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so happy and honored to be joined by Paulina Escanez, chef and owner of Paulina Escanez Gourmandiz from San Juan, Puerto Rico. She's on the phone with us right now. Paulina, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is, this is such a, uh, a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. So I know that you're based in San Juan, but... You were originally born in Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, what was life? What was life like growing up? What was food's influence on you when you were younger? What were uh, What were your earliest food memories? Um, well, um, you know, in Mexico we have the the fortune that we have everything fresh all the time. You know, um, fruit, uh, fruits, uh, vegetables, uh, meats. Uh, seafood, everything travels so well, and each uh, region has uh, their own um, specific kind of cuisine, and the one in Guadalajara is, Guadalajara I think is the second um, the second largest city in Mexico, so we do have a lot of uh, international influence, and my family basically is from Spain, so I grew up with... Um, you know, with 100% uh, Mexican street food when I used to go out. And then at my home, my my grandma and my aunts and mother, um, they used to cook, uh, you know, like a Spanish-oriented kind of a cuisine. And on top of that, I have uh, three uncles that they are very, very uh, foodies. Actually, two of them hunt uh, for hobby. So whatever they used to hunt, 
um, you know, they used to um, flew it over Mexico and we'll have it, um, you know, cooked. So I was introduced to uh, like a, you know, like weird, uh, just to say that term, because when you are a child, you know, uh, like a Faisan is not that uh, common, right? Um, so I was in, introduced to very different flavors since I was a, a kid. And being a Mexican, I think that influence, um, I had a, a great influence in my, in my palate because in Mexico, uh, we are not picky eaters. We eat everything. Um, so basically, is, is, is that what I, what I have in my, in my memories. So when did you start getting into the kitchen? Were you helping out when the uncles were coming back from the hunt? Were you helping out with the aunts and your mothers and your grandmothers? When did you uh, start rolling up your sleeves and, and getting into the kitchen? My, my, my mother has a sister. She's like 10 years uh, younger than her. So she got married, had a baby, and um, I was her, her helper. So I used to go out after my school, and she used to cook for, um, for her husband very, very gourmet uh, things. So she used to have all the food and, and, and wine magazines, the gourmet magazines. So I used to go to the, to the dessert uh, pages, and I used to reply it, the, the recipes that uh, caught my eye. And every single time, mostly, of the time that I tried the recipes, they came out, like, so good. And they were looking exactly mm. as, you know, the, the, as, you, you know, in the magazines. So at that uh, very young age, maybe when I was, like, uh, 10, 12, 12 years, uh, I knew that I was good at cooking. And so every weekend, uh, I used to bake for my friends and, and you know, and my family. And then I took off. Uh, I finished uh, high school. I moved to Boston. And then from Boston, I, I moved to Puerto Rico. And the first time that they uh, invited me to have a dinner in a friend's house, I went to a bakery and I saw the options that they had. And I wasn't satisfied with that. So what I did is, like, I bought all the ingredients and went home. And basically, I just baked, like, basic brownies that my mother um, and I uh, used to bake a lot. And people, I, I, um, in that dinner, a lot of chefs went. So those were amazed by the taste of the brownies. And they, every time that I, that I had parties, uh, I became famous because of, of my desserts. So when they opened the restaurant, I'm talking about like three different uh, chefs in Puerto Rico, they hired me to bake for them all the desserts. So that's why I I started, uh, you know, uh, focusing on the on the cuisine talent that I had, and put aside my master, which is in art, uh, nothing to do with you know with cooking. I actually never took a cooking class in my life. Everything is mm. from uh, from uh, you know from uh, practicing and and reading books and stuff. And I started my career in the business, and I used to have um, a company, a little company that um, used to provide uh, desserts. And after around seven years or eight that I had it, I decided for personal uh, reasons to go back home to live in Mexico again after many, many years. And I sold the company, the recipes, everything. 
I went back, and four months later, I came to Puerto Rico to visit a friend and to stay maybe like uh, one or two months in Puerto Rico. And I met this uh, wonderful guy, which I'm, I'm with right now. And he knew that I was very good at, uh, you know, baking and cooking and, and everything and entertaining. So he basically said, you know, why don't you give it a try and have a restaurant? You'll be amazing, you know, to do that. Uh, let's begin with a, with a very small concept, which it was basically breakfast and lunch, and that was it. So I was home by 6 p.m. Every, every single day, which was amazing. I really liked that. And on the weekends, I had a brunch. So I started with that, and I said, you know, I'm going to cook because, you know, remember, I'm not a chef. I'm a trained chef. So I'm going to cook, like, whatever, you know, uh, my, our friends have when they go to our house. And if people like this kind of food, you know, which feels fresh and uh, non-pretential, uh, you know, very nothing fried, very easy going. Then I think my concept uh, might, might be good, you know, to have a serious restaurant with, you know, with a lot of uh, seating and then bar and later on uh, nightlife and, and so on. So basically I started with a very small restaurant. Hurricane Maria came and we had to close it. Nothing happened to the restaurant per se, but uh, the area uh, in, which, in which my restaurant was, it was uh, a little bit affected. So it was a challenge for us, you know, to run it again. So uh, we we started looking for a new place and found this amazing uh, place, which has uh, like a lot of our communities and schools and hospitals and stuff. And we gave it a try a year ago, and it's been a fantastic, a fantastic uh, road. I gotta say that it's been really great. People really like, cool. um, you know, uh, uh, yeah. So sorry. No, no, no. I mean, that's amazing. Um, what has the biggest learning been since before and after the hurricane? What did you have to shift with your business? What did you find that you could keep the same? What are some of the things that you were able to do or made you think about differently about running a business? Uh, after Maria, I mean, Everyone was scared. It was very difficult to, um, especially my kind of uh, cuisine, which is very farm-to-table. Um, most of the crops were destroyed, so it was, it was a challenge for me to find that quality of um, organic, local produce. It was, it was a challenge, definitely. So I was a little bit scared, but because I closed it and then I had this um, construction going on, uh, I opened the restaurant after, I will say, almost a year after Maria. So it, it gave me a year so everyone else got, um, you know, got on, uh, got on track again. And by the time that I opened the restaurant, I found it easier, but I was scared. And by the time that Maria, uh, you know, before and after, I will say it's been incredible how... The, this kind of industry, more now than ever, um, I've seen the change. Uh, uh, we really, we, we understand how important it is uh, to um, buy from uh, local producers. 
instead of going to Costco and, you know, buy, yes, cheaper. I wouldn't say that. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it, it, it's not ours. It's not ours brothers. So basically it gave everyone the chance to try uh, small um, agricultures and farmers and so on and gave them a hand. So I think from that time on, it's been growing up, like nonstop. I'm, I'm amazed on the versatility that uh, now I have on uh, products, even before Maria. So it's been great. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that for people who may not understand um, what it means to run a farm-to-table restaurant in San Juan and um, how much you can rely on farmers and then how much you had to rely on big-box supermarket chains um, and how you are creatively solving for that problem? Um, well, because this is an island, we have everything, you know, coming, um, you know, <clears throat> by uh, ships. So, uh, first of all, nothing, nothing, it was ours before, and everything, you know, not, nothing's fresh, really fresh. So, by, I mean, just for that, just um, having to change, you know, our concept, and and to and to uh, support uh, local communities have been um, a little bit more expensive actually for us. I mean, my cost of uh, a pound per uh, local greens, like uh, versus uh, imported uh, from uh, you know uh, supermarkets, it's ridiculous the the price, and a lot of people will say in this industry that I'm crazy or the people that support this kind of movement, we are crazy. But we're, I mean, we are not. We are really uh, gambling on, on the benefit that this island it has to produce their own things because Dominican Republic, which is a neighbor island, they do produce a lot of things. So we do have the qualities on the soil to do that. We just have a little bit more money, you know, investors' money to have um crops and uh, tools and education for the people uh, and, and for, um, you know, for regular people, not just for industry people, for regular people to really look after what it's from here, you know? Like, I, I know that I want to eat maybe some blueberries, you know, during um, February, but if they are not in season, why to get them and why to fly them from, you know, from the other side of the world and we have to understand that and it, it is a big commitment and as I'm repeating the prices that I pay for the things they are not you know uh, I mean now they are not the the how could I say uh, they are not 100% beneficial for my pocket but they are very beneficial mm. for the future of, of this uh, island which I believe, you know, it has everything to, to go on. And the, um, the chefs that I admire the most on the island, they support this kind of movement. So I think we are a small community, like, you know, like one by one by one, and then it's word of mouth. Like, actually, today I was uh, getting some, uh, some things for my restaurant in a, in a restaurant store, and we were three chefs, and we were exchanging phone numbers of the – Go cheese uh, lady.
of the artisanal uh, bread of the it was amazing to see that we didn't see this you know like three years ago never never because you used to go to chain supermarkets or these big companies that uh, sell you uh, imported stuff so I think I mean I'm very proud that uh, I support this kind of uh, local local people I love it we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we're going to come back. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, why cooking speaks so naturally to you and the new menu that you just updated, updated with your restaurant. We have a song okay. from the musical archives. Yeah. Uh, here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Paulina Escanez. Paulina Escanes Gormandiz from San Juan, Puerto Rico. I want to go back to a little bit about this uh, intuitive relationship that you have with cooking and your ability to craft flavors. What is it about the culinary arts that you connect with so well? Why do you think it's come so naturally to you, not just as a home cook, but also as a restaurateur and chef? Um, I remember since I was a kid, I exactly knew what I wanted to eat. And I I think it is a gift uh, that I understand. um, And I I, I don't want to sound preppy or or anything, but I I understand why the cheese has to be like super melted. And, for example, every time that I go to a restaurant, my husband laughs because I really, I, I, I'm very specific about when I order, like, a hammer. I will say, please, just make sure that the cheese is, like, melted. And it sounds ridiculous, but if, if, if it's not, you will taste another thing. And I don't know why I, I, I know it. And I've been, I've been um, developing um, maybe my palate uh, by not being shy and try very different uh, kinds of uh, cuisines and spices. So I kind of know if, if there's heat, if there's acid, if you need to are, uh, add a little bit uh, of sweetness uh, or fat or um, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I just try and try and just by tasting things, even in my kitchen, when I when I give out the recipes, I mean the morning after or during the shift, I will go and try the sauces or you know all the preparations. And just by sometimes maybe just by looking at the things, I know that something is not right. Like they need more cilantro, they need more salt. Um, they uh, they added too much water. 
For example, it is just something that you know. And I am, I, because I used to bake a lot of desserts, my, my sugar tolerance is very, is very low right now. So everything sugary, I will, I will try to avoid it. So I will say no, less sugar. Because too much sugar, it will, you know, it will, at the end, you will just eat it for uh, finishing, you know, the, the slice or whatever you're having. And if you balance, you know, the sweetness, you might have the whole dessert or things like that. I just, I just know. And I also read a lot and I, I follow a lot of um, chefs, trained chefs, and I don't mind asking for tips, you know, to my friends that they are trained. So I'm very open about that. And the things that I cook at the, at the restaurant, they are the things that I like to eat. It's as simple as that. I do not uh, cook anything that I wouldn't eat or that I wouldn't crave. So that's very important for me too. Uh, at the beginning, it was a challenge because a lot of people, they, they suggest you create a menu that, uh, that people uh, they are used to or that will be easier for them. And at the beginning, just by the names, for, I'm, and I'm going to give you an example. For at the beginning at the restaurant, instead of um, aguachile, which is a term that we, we use in Mexico for a special kind of a ceviche, you know, raw fish, and I had on the menu, and no one asked for it, just for the name. So my husband said, why don't you say, you know, it's like a Mexican ceviche, and it will sell better. And I thought about it, and at the end, we, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to educate people. You know, they can do, of course, whatever they want. But, uh, yes, it's my responsibility as well to pass on generations that this is not called Mexican ceviche. It's called aguachile, you know? So, um, yeah. so it, it's, yeah. it's been, you know, it, it's been that for me. So, as a restaurateur, you've had your restaurant for over a year. Uh, that's open, and you're currently changing the menu or, or have just gone through a menu change. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the evolution of the restaurant, about where you started and where you are now and, and, and where you want to go? Yes. Um, at the beginning, well, you know, because it was my first uh, full-on restaurant, like, you know, like seven days a week, uh, lunch, lunch and dinner, and then brunch, lunch and, and dinner on the weekends. Um, it was very complicated, you know, the first year. Just to have your own team, organizing everything, um, correcting the recipes, training, uh, retraining, you know, how is that? So um, I... I create a, a very simple menu, maybe just, you know, I had just one filet mignon, one kind of fish, uh, one salad, for example, uh, one dish of the day, uh, one soup, um, and then uh, like three, three or four appetizers. That was it. And now after a year, because my restaurant became this uh, community restaurant where people and neighbors and... and teachers and doctors and whoever is, you know, I mean, a very uh, uh, tra uh, transitable uh, uh, street. So 
it became this restaurant that you go maybe two, three times per week. So, and for these regular clients, they used to ask, like, Pau, like, would you mind, you know, adding, like, maybe lamb? Or would you adding maybe another fish? Or maybe another pasta? Or they were, they were asking for it. And I became, you know, open to the, to the petition. And also because, you know, the chef's life is, is, like, is like this. You get bored as well, you know, to have the same menu, the same items for a year. So I decided, you know, uh, now that it's, you know, summertime and it's kind of uh, like slower season for us, uh, I will retrain, I will create, you know, like, a, like another, um, another recipes. So basically it grew up like uh, 50% my menu and I have many, many, many options right now for vegan, for vegetarians, for pescatarians, for families. Um, I, um, you know, they, I created a place that they do share. And so that was, that was a, a pretty, uh, a pretty nice, uh, you know, transformation of my menu. And I'm very happy with it. The regulars are happy with it. The tourists that they come, they, I didn't take out the, you know, the most, um, the most famous dishes. I kept them and basically I added a lot of dishes. So they are, they, you know, it's a win-win situation for everyone. So they, they are very happy with, with that. I love it. So as you look towards the future of both the restaurant and then also San Juan and this new chef, farm, other chef ecosystem, what are you most hopeful about? What would you like to see happen? And how do you see your role in all of it? Um, I think my dream, I call it Paulina Scanes Gourmandis, because the Gourmandis, it refers to a, um, like a gourmet person, basically. So my, this first restaurant, it has, because people ask me, you know, like, but, but is it Mexican? Is it Italian? Is it, no. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's you know, cookie from all over, basically, the places that I visited and then I fall in love with the with the plates, and then I I came and replicate them, right? Kind of. And this is the restaurant that I try everything, and then I would like to have, for example, Paulina Scanes eh, Taco Place, or Paulina Scanes Thailand Spot, or you know what I mean? I would like to become a brand. Um, I am thrilled that I'm you know I'm Mexican in Puerto Rico's been my home. Uh, from the past, I think I'm going to be 17 years here. So I really feel like this is home to me. And I want to make this project, um, you know, like a, like a very successful uh, one, which maybe I can have a Paulina Scanes Bakery as well, which I, you know, which it was my 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 first, uh, my first uh, thing to do here. And I do have an, uh, an amazing, an amazing partners. Um, they are my, my best friends. Um, they, they helped me all the way through my, my husband is, he's amazing. He, you know, he runs the, the, the money, the money of, uh, department. So I keep on track mm. of, of that. And he keeps on track of, you know, whatever selling, 
whatever uh, it's ordered most or 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 so on. So I would like to to be a, a small brand, maybe give a, give classes uh, like a simple ones, you know, that they can recreate uh, something that uh, that I serve at the restaurant, which is basically like a homemade meal. So it's very easy for for people, I think, to to feel that uh, I can give them uh, classes or guide them a little bit, you know, into into this uh, experience of uh, of become a a good cook. I love it. Well, Paulina, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. If people wanted to visit the restaurant or find out more about you online, how can they find you? Instagram, Facebook, what's the best way? Yes, uh, we do have uh, all the social media um, platforms. Um, the, the Instagram one is Paulina Gurmandis with a Z-E at the end. And then we do have um, our website, which is paulinagurmandis.com. So they can they can go there and check out, you know, my my photos and, and my menus. And if they come to Puerto Rico, please let me know that you heard, you know, this uh, interview, and I will make sure that you will be treated amazingly well, and I'll be happy to to meet you. So awesome. uh, please, yes, please come I hope to Puerto get- Rico. You're gonna love it. I hope to get down there very soon. Uh, thank you so much. We have a live uh, song. Yes, I can't wait to uh, eat the food. Uh, we have a live song from the archives and then a live band in studio at Snacky Tunes at HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. And I'm Jeet Paul. And in the studio today, we have an amazing musician, Sarah Jaffe. So it says that you're from Texas. From Texas, All right? Yes. And you've been, you've been writing music for a long time. A long time. All right. And your resume is quite impressive, as I see. <laughs> it says that... Um, you scored and contributed original music to the independent film Never Going Back. You co-wrote and sang on Bad Guy by Eminem, which is insane. It was a wild card, yeah. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you also contributed to the voice of uh, the Blue Umbrella. Yes, John Bryan. That's amazing. It was cuckoo. So what was it like growing up in Texas? Um, I love Texas. It's... Um, I mean, my childhood was it was you know pretty boring, but I think I uh, I think I just had so much space to do whatever I wanted, and it, all that space kind of left me to my imagination, which I think was really kind of uh, pivotal for what I wanted to do. So Trick, a, lot time, a lot of time, a lot of lot of time on my hands. Yeah. So when did you get into music then? Um, I mean, I started pretty uh, pretty straight. Oh, I'm, yeah, because I moved to Los Angeles when I graduated high school. So I was 18, and I I got my ass kicked. Los Angeles kicked my ass, man. <laughs> so I came back of, after almost a year there. Um, so I kind of, I really got my start in Texas in, like, 2005, 2006. What happened uh, in L.A.? Oh, just, like, a slew of parking tickets. <laughs> and I had a job. I literally had a job for six hours, and then I got fired. I worked at a bagel shop in Santa Monica, and I told him I couldn't work Sundays, and this is when I was working. And he was like, oh, well, then I'm going to have to let you go. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) It was uh, eye-opening. I think I just thought that I would go there, and it would be like, just naming lights and amazing, and the the seas would part for me. and that is not the case. It's never been the case. So um, it was a good learning experience. And I came back to Texas really just with a lot of ambition and um, just my sights set on, you know, achieving, making my first record and then the second. So it's just been like a really wonderful progression and a lot of amazing lessons along the way. That's really so, cool. Yeah. But before Los Angeles, like, how did you get into music? Like, what was your first artist that really kind of 
drove you into like, oh, wow, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life? Um, I mean, I think it really just came from my uh, appreciation like mm-hmm. that my parents gave me. Um, so Are your parents I, musical? Yeah, my mom's side especially. I mean, I, I started singing probably 13, 14, like uh, in churches with her. So um, I think it was probably them. So, I mean, it's it's been... I mean, you did ask me, like, when did I actually start, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, like, 13, 14. I just started wow. doing those kinds of shows, and, yeah. Was that your, your mom's side of the family was musical? Who uh, who, and in what way? What did you ask? Your mom's side of the family was musical? Oh, yeah. My mom was just constantly singing, and... Um, your mom sang all the time? All the time, yeah. In church, uh, she would, you know... She had a really lovely alto voice, and so the church choir was always like, Malia, you take the lead on this one. So she always had the church solo. And so watching her, um, and also, you know, my cousins were very, very musical, and I always looked up to them. So it was just that side of the family and my dad's side of the family really kind of gave me the starting out taste, like a ton of James Taylor, Cat Stevens. So that's kind of how I, you know, stumbled to playing folk music in the very, very beginning. And... Do you remember when you first started recording? Mm. Yeah, there was a, f- a friend of mine um, in, when, that I had in high school that I would just go to his house, and he had like a little just computer set up. So I started recording then, and I uh, shortly after um, recorded an EP. That was in 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that first EP... Um, really kind of launched the next full-length record, which was Suburban Nature, which was mm-hmm. in 2011, and that's when I really started touring. And this was all <laughs> in, in Texas? Yep, all well, in Texas. What was it about the Texas music scene that you felt was more uh, opportunist for you to develop your musical career versus the short stint in yeah. L.A.? Just the musicians that I met, there was, uh, I think Texas kind of lends itself to this hospitable attitude. And so there was a lot of accessibility um, just with the the people that I met that were just down to play. Like it wasn't about money or no one had any preconceived notions about like what was in it for them. Um, So I really, uh, yeah, it was just like hospitable people that were down to play or down to record on records. Um, and I've always found Texas musicians to be like that. They're still like just some of the nicest, coolest. And Rob, who's playing drums with me today, you're, you're Texas, baby. So, <laughs> I mean, and I've met my whole band just because everyone just wanted to play music together. And it's just a very, very um, egoless kind mm-hmm. of mindset in a lot of the scenes. Dallas, uh, Denton, yeah, great places. Yeah. That's really cool. You want to jump to a song? <laughs> yeah, can we hear a song? Sure. I'm going to jump back in there. Hi, G. What are, we, uh, what are you going to play for us first? I'm going to play um, a song with Rob called Dark Energy. Dark Energy, stay Yeah. 
As I open my eyes, I watch someone take such a um, delicious-looking bite. <laughs> it was the first thing I saw, and I do you really always do you always sing with your eyes closed? Yeah, I do. So eyes open, bite eyes a pizza. Open, bite a pizza. Time for a song. Eyes closed. It's just getting yeah. in the space. Uh, I don't know. It's just something that I do. I prefer to like think about the song in like a very focused way and for some reason like not seeing anything really helps yeah 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 makes a lot of sense so uh, i wanted to talk a little bit about the two eps that came before uh this is better yeah sounded like it was a very very difficult ep to write do you want to like talk a little bit about the process of that sure um i was going through a icky icky breakup and um at that time, at that exact time, I had just started to write for other artists. I just finished that, the score that I uh, did for Never Going Back, mm-hmm. um, and just really loved uh, the top lining, like writing songs for other people. I loved that environment and just kind of more so the headspace that it that it um, put me in, which was, you know, sometimes the more you think about yourself and your song, like the more your ego drives it, and yeah. I like just the creative aspect of just jumping into writing with no ego and um that world just kind of put me in that constant mindset of like just like churning it out and create creating a schedule and a routine for myself and uh so I started writing these pop songs with um a good friend and a great producer his name's Aaron Aaron Kelly and during this process I was like oh no this is this feels like something that I want to release. I want to perform these songs. I want to take them on the road. I just was attached to them 
mainly because of what I was going through. And so I ended up kind of using this whole uh, top lining process as a vessel to get these songs out. So, um, yeah, we I was just like, well, fuck it. We'll just release these songs and put them as two EPs. And that's what happened. What and was so, it like working with uh, Aaron? Lovely. He's um, just been uh, just uh, filled with gratitude that having met him. And uh, he's just a cool producer like Is he he from texas just, as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of texas people in your life yeah and he works a lot uh, you know in the commercial world and mm-hmm. so there's a there's a quickness that really satiates because i'm just impatient in the studio like i need to hear something yeah yeah a certain way and a lot of times i have uh, uh trouble getting there mentally uh, just to make that mental jump a lot of times and translate the ideas that i that i have in my head a lot and uh aaron and i just have a really good kind of ping pong uh, mm. banter relationship like did you come to the it. table with like lyrics or did he come oh with, like, no we beat? started each day like I w- he was like what kind of song do you want to make yeah, and I yeah. would be like oh let's do more up tempo like um, he would just kind of make a beat and and I would just start singing melodies a lot of these songs were just started as, as melodies and then I would just kind of go back and insert the filling and play keys on top of it or um, but they're all built around beat Mm, so interesting and just not hearing uh you know sometimes a bass line will help but i need as much space uh within that beat so that i can just kind of create a melody verse chorus verse chorus and so on and how do you capture a song about heartbreak Mm. i mean you gotta go through that shit right Mm. I really do think that it's so uh, grossly precious, but that's where you are. You just, there's no denying it. And so that's where I was. And um, it was also a, kind of a lifesaver. It was a way for me to get out of it. Because once I started making music and it just kind of cleared the pathway a little bit for me to see that... Um, yeah, it's just something I can depend upon. It's just been so healthy for me to have that as uh, just a spine in my life that I can create something from just a gross situation. So um, I think in, to write something, you know, that's heartfelt or about heartbreak, you got to feel that. Yeah, it sounds like it yeah. was very cathartic. Yeah. And uh, so going from that to the new EP, Smut... <laughs> what was the what was the uh actually let's talk about that first very yeah. interesting way that title came about do you want to tell the story yeah actually uh danny my girlfriend's uh roommate got this uh, she what part of virginia is she from um roanoke. yeah she got this voicemail from someone in roanoke um virginia and it wasn't katie had no idea who this woman is oh shit i gave her what name of me back um she had no idea who this woman was, um, but it was very much like a Virginia accent. And, and it also sounded like some a family member that I've, a few actually, that I have in Beaumont, Texas. Just country, country ass accent. <laughs> and it's actually the voicemail that you, that you hear. I was like, oh shit, Danny, can, is there any way? I was in the middle of like, sampling shit I just love to sample and make my own samples and I was like can you please ask your roommate if I can chop this up and stretch it out and make this into the the intro song it's so this voicemail um 
is <laughs> how I how I landed on that title. I was like, oh, this is um, amazing. Are you still reading smut? Give me a call. I got my cell phone. I love you. Bye. That was great. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I'm so happy she let you use that. <laughs> and how did it change? You know, you went through the cathartic um, of the, the previous EPs, and, and what joy filled this one, or how did you feel elated in this process? Um, oh, God, man, in so many ways. It was like, you know, like it, those moments in your life when you like army crawl your way out of a situation and there's just like a, a part of you that's like, I'm alive, you know, like I music was this like breath into my and, you know, into my depleted world where I just started writing again and just really um, taking in every opportunity. So I was just having a lot of fun. And so I once again, like mu the music that I was writing was just reflecting that in every way. And um, it was the first time I'd been single in a long time. And um, I was living alone for the first time in my adult life, which was incredible. And of course, since moving here, my, <laughs> my situation is very different. But I had, you know, like an amazing apartment and was living downtown uh, um, in Dallas, Texas, and just really soaking up um, every opportunity and... Uh, every like uh, studio opportunity just saying yes to pretty much everything and just felt so rewarded during that time and, and wanted to make with, a really funny pee that you worked with Aaron it. on this too right yeah was yeah. the approach any different than the last one yeah I mean there's always just a bit more confidence with each time you record just because you know that something can be transformed from scrap yeah. you know I, all I had was a voicemail and we made something that was so fucking funny and cool and um, yeah, it was just, I think I just felt more confident about, uh, confident about what I could make. Do you guys like sit in a room and be like, Hey, this is what I'm feeling. And you guys just yeah. talk a bit and it's then it's kind of just... weird. There's, it, it, it's exactly what it is. It's wow. just like Aaron and I are just kind of like an unlikely pair. Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of times when you walk into a studio, there's a, a lot of times where you don't know somebody. Yeah. And you can just sit down and you, it's like a conversation. So Aaron and I just like, we have a lot to talk about and yeah. we just get a lot done. And the music kind of grows out of that? Yeah. Wow. It just stems out of these, out of beats with no melody or an idea that I've had. Do you guys like, put like a lot of thought into like the kind of chord progressions or cadences that you're going to go with? Yes. So um, with this EP being a lot different than the previous one, yeah. what, was the, what was the approach technically from like a musical perspective? Um... I mean, like, for example, like with important, I, ha I had this just moment when I was by myself in my apartment, I wrote the whole thing in my head mm. from like, I have like the recording from start to finish, um, of course, without any instrumentation. So it's literally me, you know, just saying, you don't think like just singing out these ideas yeah, yeah. that I can hear perfectly in my head. So then I took that recording of Important, of just me singing, took it to Aaron, and just basically we built a beat off of that and then went back in. Um, and really, it's like trying to match pieces with just fucking cloud. Like, there's no solid form of melody. I don't know what notes I'm singing. So 
Um, there would be a couple hours where I'm just like trying to find those four that four note progression on a keyboard, and which can take a while. Yeah. <laughs> And then you start going on these rabbit trails of like, oh, this synth sounds amazing. And so it's just, um, you know, some days where it felt like we were just going on rabbit trail after rabbit trail. But Mm -hmm. um, once we got that solid form down, um, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's like the fun part. You just get to, you get to put all the fix-ins and throw them in the mix. And um, I just wanted something with that song, with important in particular, like a little bit of goof you know, to kind of lift it out of itself. I wanted it to just be a fun record. And yeah. um, so there was just a lot of experimentation that really uh, didn't see a full form um, until, you know, the last recording days. So Can we hear another song? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What are you going to play for us? I'm going to play um, a song from Smut. It's a song called One Hit, One Wonder. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. 
So uh, what's what's uh, what's next for for you musically? Well, I mean, I would love to start uh, recording again. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so soon. Yeah, I just I, I really want to focus on um, kind of making uh, uh, making a consistent schedule for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy for me to like release something and and just kind of float into the abyss, like, and just be like, well, I did something. And then time passes, and you're like, I should really be consistent with this and treat it like the job that it is. Um, so I would like to, I mean, Rob and I have talked about getting together. I've got um, some shows coming up that I really want to put my creative focus on that first, but I, I imagine I'll start recording Some in shows next. in New York? Um, no, no. Um, in Texas, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do a little one-off here and there, cute little bop over and bop back. <laughs> where where, and when? Um, well, the big one that I'm getting ready for is uh, I'm playing with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, which is holy like, a, I know, holy shit was my thought, too. <laughs> um, it's been a bucket lister for quite some time, and that's in February, but I'm, you know, working with the Dallas Symphony, so um, there's a lot of, like, arrangement you know, string arrangement parts and uh, just coordinating with. They're going to do strings different. over your song. Oh yeah! Oh, that's amazing. I know. Oh, that's super exciting. I'm wigging out. I Are know. you going to be part of the whole arrangement and uh, orchestration of it? Yes. Holy. So God. I'm trying to just, um, you know, <laughs> that's my brain exciting. is just so like military trained to be like, we're playing Phoenix, Arizona, in a tiny <laughs> little shithole. Like, <laughs> give them rock. You know, like. Um, so I'm really trying to like think about it in every every detailed aspect, uh, just to elevate it from you know the how, usual set that I that I would play. How are you going to balance the heartbreak songs with the arm and crawl happiness this songs? That's a great question. I am not quite sure yet, but uh, the string players will have a lot to do with that. So I'm working on a lot of the majority of where my mental space is now is like just like thinking about transitions yeah, yeah. Um, and trying to visualize that. And because, um, I mean, there's so many times like where I have an idea of like something works so perfectly in my head, like everything's in the same key in my head. Um, and so I'm really just focusing on uh, how to make Clementine connect with small talk, you know, like yeah. how do I make that jump? Jeez, you could tell like a whole narrative with all this, with all the music that you have. You could tell, you could like put on a, like a, like a Broadway <laughs> musical show or something. Yeah. Well, I'm almost, uh, um, I'm trying to think about it in that way. But when I start thinking about it in that way, I, I feel like my pretentiousness like just really comes to life. But there's no way not to be precious about it. Like when you're putting thirty of your own songs together, you're yeah. like, I. I'm starring in my own musical. Um, but I, you know, I'm just going to run with it. I'm so, like, I'm just so thrilled about playing with the Dallas Symphony and, um, yeah, all of my bandmates, my pals on stage. So I'm, yeah, I'm really trying to be diligent about every single aspect. Sounds like it's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. So we want to make t- sure we have time for one more song, but... Um, where can people find you? Where can they check out the tour dates? Where can they get tickets to the Dallas Symphony? Yeah. Listen to all 30 <laughs> songs about you and your life. Oh, God. Uh, How's that sound coming out of someone else's mouth? <laughs> <laughs> terrible, my friend. Terrible. 
Um, but you should buy tickets. Um, you can find all of the links and info of Showtimes on my website, which is www.sarahjaffe.com. Any uh, Instagram, Facebook? Yeah, I do have Instagram. It's uh, S-A-Y-J-A-F-F-E, Say Jaffe. That's where you can find me on Instagram, and Twitter's the same. So cool. Amazing. Well, a uh, big thank you to Chef Escanas. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Jeet. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, my man. Thank you. Welcome Jake. to the hot seat. It's good to have you here. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. What is the name of the last song? We're going to close out with another song from Smut called Important. Amazing. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you. You don't shock me. But you surprise me. Reality TV is not much going on. Same word, same song. Just like everyone else. But it feels important to see. Cause you're important to me
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.